Good morning also from my side and welcome uh, today's morning panel uh, with our three uh, distinguished lecturers. We will have uh, three um, lectures each approximately 20 minutes and afterwards we will have discussions. And I would like to introduce our first speaker, Professor Bernhard Schiemer. Professor Bernhard Schiemer is director um, at the European Commission's legal service, and he is in charge um, uh, of two teams at the moment, uh, one um, for civil service law and the other one for the area of freedom, security, and justice. But he's not on, only a high-ranking uh, civil servant, he is also a distinguished scholar, and if I remember correctly, he received his habilitation in 2004 from Graz University, and he um, is honorary professor uh, for European law at um, Vienna, um, uh, uni um, Vienna University for business, and I think it's administration. I don't, I don't even know the English name of your university. <laughs> and he has uh, published um, I'm very sorry, um, and he has published uh, numerous um, uh, papers on European law. Um, please join me in welcoming Professor Bernhard Schiemer here at our panel. Thank you very much, Iris, for the kind introduction, and thank you all for the warm Welcome, good morning. Uh, I would like to start my short presentation with two important disclaimers. Firstly, it is true that I work for the European Commission, but everything that I say here, I say in an absolutely personal capacity, and it can in no way be attributed to the European Commission. The other, also quite important disclaimer, is that, as you may have heard, I'm uh, working in two different subject matters in particular right now. Um, digital services and regulation of, of the digital world uh, is not one of them. So what you hear from me, you hear really from the perspective of a general EU lawyer and not at all uh, of a specialist in the area that I'm now going to talk about. <laughs> so with that, I would like to take us this morning uh, more or less quickly to a point on which would I would like to cast a spotlight, namely um, how the Digital Services Act deals with particularly big players on the market. And uh, I would like to take us there, first of all, by, uh, okay, now I need to turn this on. And here we are. Um, by highlighting that the Digital Services Act, in spite of its name, does not regulate all digital services, but only one very particular type of such services, which it calls intermediary services. And intermediary services are uh, what is then further defined in the Act as mere conduit caching and hosting services. Broadly speaking, those are all services involving the transmission and storage of user-generated content. It covers video sharing platforms, online marketplaces, blogging websites, social media, and internet access services. A common feature of all those services is that the service provider generally acts passively with regard to the content that it transmits or 
stores. And that is important for the type of regulation that we are going to see uh, the union legislator has uh, provided for. What is also very important as regards the scope is that the act applies to service providers, to all services actually offered in the European Union, regardless of the origin of the service. Then, of course, it's a question how you define, and the act does that, when a service is actually offered in the union, sort of the accidental uh, use of a service by someone who doesn't actually want to offer it in the union would not come within that scope. But whenever something is actually offered in the union, the act will apply, no matter where the company is established. The objectives that the Digital Service Services Act wants to achieve are, as it says itself in its Recital 9, by the way, I mean, the, the Digital Services Act is one particularly thoroughly reasoned piece of legislation, I would say. I mean, at least lengthily reasoned, yeah, about the, about the thoroughness one may perhaps debate, but, but this is 100 pages in the official journal, and 40 of those 100 pages are the recitals, yeah, the reasons that the legislator gives for adopting this piece of legislation. And what the legislator in broad terms, and there are many complements to that, of course, says is that it wants to ensure a safe and predictable and trusted online environment, and then, and perhaps most importantly, it wants to address the dissemination of illegal content online and the societal risks that the dissemination of disinformation or other content, dangerous, harmful, potentially harmful content may generate. It wants to guarantee the respect of the fundamental rights that are guaranteed in the Charter of Fundamental Rights and it wants at the same time to facilitate innovation. And here I can already sense uh, room for discussion whether it manages that, but uh, um, that is perhaps not going to play such an important role in the topic that I'm going to cover here because we are actually dealing uh, with, the, with the big players who are perhaps best placed to adapt to the most stringent uh, legal requirements. The Act follows an internal market logic, which means that the legislator has observed before passing this legislation that the member states uh, have started to regulate or are likely to start regulating within this particular area uh, to introduce laws, uh, in particular on diligence requirements for providers of such intermediary services. The risk where different member states start regulating this in different ways is, of course, that this is going to create disturbances, obstacles to the internal market, which is the justification for the union legislator to pass harmonizing legislation to facilitate uh, free movement, to facilitate the free provision of services in the internal market. And what it does, and that is also very important, is that it fully harmonizes the conditions for the provision of intermediary services as regards the objectives that it mentions. Which means that where a service provider complies with the various provisions laid down in this regulation, which is what the Digital Services Act is, um, 
its provision of services cannot be hindered in any way by national regulations aiming at the same objectives. So there's full harmonization as regards the objectives that I've just talked about and that the Digital Services Act pursues. There may be other objectives that are not touched upon by the Act. Turning to the substance, there are two big elements, broadly speaking. The first one is that the liability of providers of such intermediary services is limited. That's one big chapter of the, of the regulation. Um, and that is done because, well, as said in the introduction, intermediary services are not themselves generators of the content, which is why it is justified to limit their liability. The counterpart to this is that you impose important due diligence duties on them. So they are not the generators of the content, but nevertheless they host, they transmit this content, which is why they take a certain responsibility uh, and which is why those due diligence obligations are imposed on them. And the way the Act does that is quite interesting because it has a layered structure. There are four different layers of obligations imposed on the providers of such intermediary services. A basic layer of obligations which is imposed on all of them, such as transparency, reporting, duties to cooperate with the authorities, duties to nominate to appoint a point of contact, for instance. Then there are additional obligations that apply to all hosting providers. Hosting services in general, also those that are not platforms. Platforms are those where the information that is hosted then becomes accessible to the public. Hosting services are those where that is not, not necessarily there for public dissemination. But already simple hosting services will have further obligations than compared with all the others. In particular, uh, a notice and action obligation. So if you tell the uh, hosting service that a certain content uh, that it hosts is illegal or harmful or whatever, there will be a duty on that hosting service to react to such a notice. Additional obligations, that would be then the, 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 the third layer, apply to providers of online platforms and online search engines. So this is where now the information that, the, the, that what is stored is there for public dissemination. And uh, those, for instance, have to have a complaint and redress mechanism. They have to provide for a possibility of out-of-court settlements. All these, uh, there, there, are, there are a number of additional obligations that only apply to those. And finally, and this is where I would like to get, there is the layer of enhanced obligations which apply to providers of very large online platforms and very large online search engines. And this is now uh, the topic that I would like to focus on. The first question is how the Digital Services Act defines those very large online platforms and very large online search engines. I will focus only 
for reasons of simplification now on the, on the platforms, um, they are really simply defined by size. Namely, they must have a number of average monthly active recipients of the service in the union that is equal to or higher than 45 million. Um, that figure doesn't actually fall from the sky. It, is, it corresponds to 10% of the union population. And that is also what the legislator explains in, in this case, recitals 75 and 76 of the act. Um, where that is the case, I mean, whether that is the case must be assessed by the European Commission. And the European Commission adopts designation decisions of these very large online platforms. For that to happen, uh, the platforms had to, had to provide uh, data on their uh, use hmm, to, the, to the commission, and the commission could also ask for more information, and then finally the commission says the act is in any event enabled to uh, use any information at its disposal to reach the conclusion that uh, a particular online uh, platform is very large and needs to be designated. Now this is what actually, and, and the reason for that is, and that I think is also important to note, that those uh, platforms are supposed to pose the highest societal and economic risks. They typically have a pan-European presence and have become de facto public spaces which play a systemic role for millions of businesses and citizens. So the Commission was tasked to designate those blobs and it has done so in uh, one first batch of decisions that were adopted on the 25th of April this year and which covered the, uh, the, the platforms that you see uh, here. And you will notice that uh, most of them are indeed uh, non-European companies. I believe the only European player here is Zalando. Right? <coughs> Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. but they're not suing because they're non-European, I would say no, that they're... Zalando yeah. is suing because they're stating that they are the only European and that's unfair. Ah, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so, so um, I mean, here at least we, we can say that we are not necessarily making life more difficult for all the European players and letting, letting all the others go scot-free. That is perhaps also one message that might not be so... Uh, useless to pass in the light of how the discussions have gone uh, previously. So what happens when you have been designated as a flop? You need to, uh, <laughs> you need to uh, carry out a risk assessment. There are, uh, there's an entire chapter or section uh, of the act which uh, tells you what you have to do. You have to carry out a risk assessment, and we are going to get to that in a second because I think the features that this risk assessment must contain are actually quite telling and quite interesting. Once you have identified particular risks, you need to take mitigation measures. And in case a crisis arises, uh, a public security or public health crisis arises, which is also something which is 
rather precisely defined in the Act, the Commission can impose quite serious uh, mitigation measures on the very large online platform, uh, which can yeah, really interfere quite significantly with uh, how those platforms conduct their business. They must have an independent audit carried out periodically, I believe annually, as regards the risks they have identified and how they deal with them, so an outside audit. They must comply with specific rules on recommender systems, which is perhaps one thing at which one should also look uh, briefly. A recommender system, says the text, is a fully or partially automated system used by an online platform to suggest in its online interface specific information to recipients of the service or to prioritize that information. So, I mean, we've all seen this. You get, when you, when you search a product, when you search something, um, you get related recommendations. And when you are a very large online platform, you need to propose to your users at least one alternative recommender system that is not based on profiling. Profiling is defined in the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, as a form of automated processing of personal data which consists of the use of personal data to evaluate certain personal aspects relating to a national, natural person. Uh, in, or, in particular to analyze or predict aspects concerning that person's performance at work, economic situation, health, personal preferences, interests, reliability, behavior, location, or movements. This is something that people are concerned about, which is something that I would personally fully understand. And therefore, very large online platforms are required, first of all, I mean, people need to know uh, that a particular uh, recommender system is based on profiling. And where that is the case, they must propose an alternative. And possible alternative being simply, um, well, the relatedness of a particular, the objective relatedness of a particular alternative product to your search. Like for instance, when you, when you search for volume one of a particular book, it would not be qualified as profiling normally, I would say, that the search proposes you volume two, right? By contrast, uh, where the, uh, the, the, the recommendation is based on the fact that you are searching from a particular country, from a particular place, yeah? this is something that would rather fall into the category of profiling and which is something that the user is entitled to ask to be excluded in those cases. So that's Article 38 of the Digital Services Act. Article 39 contains another uh, significant obligation, namely additional advertising transparency. So when you, are, when you have been designated, you need to have a register basically of anyone who places ads on your platform and a number of details about those ads sometime into the past and that must be something that the user of the service can search rather easily. So that's another relatively serious and strict obligation uh, imposed exclusively on those designated very large online platforms. 
What is, I think, particularly interesting are the risks that have to be taken into account in the risk assessment. So first of all, there is the dissemination of illegal content. Yeah? Is the service likely to be used for the dissemination of illegal content? And then secondly, what are the possible negative effects for the exercise of fundamental rights? And here we have, uh, in particular, so this is not a limited list, human dignity, private and family life, protection of personal data, freedom of expression and information, equal treatment, non-discrimination, the respect of the rights of the child, and also a high level of consumer protection. So the argument for regulating here is not really that we want necessarily to bring fundamental rights into play uh, in the relationship between different private actors ultimately. So this is not necessarily about the horizontal effect of fundamental rights, but it's rather about the fact, the fact that states want to protect those fundamental rights and states feel that they have a duty to protect those fundamental rights and rather than allowing them to do so individually, which would be detrimental to the internal market, we do so in a harmonized and exhaustive way to ensure that once that high level of protection of the fundamental rights in question is reached, this is also sufficient for the service providers to uh, carry out their activity. There are also other effects that need to be taken into account, namely effects on civic discourse and electoral processes. I mean, all this goes back to quite a number of experiences that one has had in the past with such uh, very large or with online platforms in general. Indeed, and that's now going to be the last point that I would like to make, as Niki has already hinted at, this is a possible source of litigation, of course. Um, you may want to, when you are a company and you, you find yourself confronted with these very serious obligations that are different from those imposed on less important uh, actors, on actors considered less important or less risky than others under the regulation, well, you may not like that and you may want to challenge on the one hand um, <coughs> the question whether, whether, whether determination has been made correctly. So do you actually have uh, 45 million users over a particular period? Has the, the, the calculation been done in a correct way? And this is uh, indeed, as I understand, because I mean, this has not yet, not everything is in the public domain, but what we do know now is that Zalando uh, and uh, Amazon have both challenged their designation as very large online platform, so they received these decisions from the commission back in April, and in due time they, I believe at least, they brought actions against this de designation, saying in the case of Zalando that uh, they are not very large. And saying in the case of uh, Amazon, essentially that um, marketplaces are in a different situation from the others and don't create the same systemic risks as YouTube or Google and, and so on. So that, that, that's in a nutshell what, what sort of has transpired uh, from the arguments made by Amazon. But again, not a lot of this is in the public domain. We have some press statements and so on. Um, 
but not much more. So what, what a very large online platform or search engine might invoke against such a designation in one way or another, and then one can discuss, of course, in what way that he can be done in litigation, but that's probably not for here, is that their fundamental rights are, of course, also impacted when they have to comply with all those obligations. Yeah? They may say that there is an issue of equal treatment, so what really distinguishes are, are the biggest ones from this line above, above the line sort of really uh, objectively in a different situation. Is an online marketplace really in a different situation from an online trader that trades basically in its own products, so to speak? So those are questions that one may ask. There are maybe answers to those questions, of course. But those are things that uh, entities might want to rely on. They themselves have, may want to rely on uh, privacy, protection of business information when it comes to this advertising transparency. This is something that one could also imagine they would find interesting. And then, of course, there's freedom of expression and information. There, freedom of expression and information. There is the freedom to conduct a business and the right to property. All different elements, different fundamental rights that need to be thrown into the balance together with the fundamental rights on the side of the users of the service that one wants to protect. And with that, I would just like to put on the screen also two sources that I have used, two articles that can also be found online, both of them. And I think I will leave it at that and thank you very much for your attention. Oh, sorry. <laughs> too quick, too quick, I can put that back on. So thank you very much, Bernhard, for this very interesting introduction, uh, introduction uh, in, into today's um, topic. I will now introduce um, today's uh, second speaker, um, Dr. Klaus Steinmaurer. He's director at the Austrian Regulatory Authority for Broadcasting and Telecommunications and in charge of telecommunications and postal services. Before join, uh, joining the Austrian Regulatory Authority, um, he held numerous leading um, positions in industry, both in Austria and abroad. Furthermore, in um, 20, um, I think in 22, um, he was vice chair of the board of the European Regulators for Electronic Communications. And since um, 2023, uh, he's a member of the um, DMA high-level um, expert group. In addition to his very impressive and broad um, experience in, in practical experience, he is also very active in academia. He has been lecturing um, at numerous um, universities, uh, amongst uh, which um, he has been lecturing, I think, since 2011 at Vienna University on international telecommunications. And he has published widely in the field of um, regulation, data protection, and compliance. Please join me in welcoming uh, Dr. Steinmaurer.
so schlecht. So. Okay. I will stop you once you reach 30 minutes. You told me before. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, I try, try to, to, to make it short because uh, thank you and good morning. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, Mrs. Eisenberg already introduced me, so I can uh, start uh, immediately. That will uh, come to, to what Mr. Shima already said. He explained us about the DSA. And, and, and as you saw, it's a very huge uh, uh, legal, legal uh, work which has to be done. Uh, there's, there's much uh, background to, to, to know and it's uh, necessary uh, that some authorities, some bodies uh, do the work which is written down in the, in the, in, in the DSA. So, but that's, that's the DSA. On the other hand, we also have the DMA. As uh, you mentioned, I'm also in this uh, high-level expert group in the uh, Digital Markets Act together with the European Commission. Uh, there's the Data Act, which was already uh, 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 published by the, government, by the, by the Parliament. Uh, there's the AI Act, which is uh, now discussed very uh, broadly in the, in, in the public. There's the Data Governance Act, and, and, and. As you know, the European Commission was very, very hard working on, on making many, many regulations in the past, uh, I would say, five years. So that was what, what my impression was for a long time. Uh, and I worked really for a long time in regulation and, and in, 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 in this field of, uh, of uh, 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 law. I can say I never experienced such a time where so many regulations at once uh, came up uh, to to us then in the past three three to four years I would say so I think it started with the GDPR and I would always say regarding data uh, GDPR is always the mother of everything uh, and and if you read the other acts you always read there's always one sentence at the end of the artificial intelligence act you see the last sentence in the, it is okay it does not impact on the general uh, uh, GDPR which is, personally said, and uh, I must also make this, this, this disclaimer, what I say here, I'm saying as, as Klaus Steinmeier and not as, 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 as the regulator, and it can be not, not uh, seen as the regulator's uh, 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 opinion at, at, at all. But coming back to that, it's, it's, it's really clear that there's a huge uh, uh, bunch of, of uh, regulation uh, now in, in, in the field. So what, what we are doing, and that's why I say, okay, uh, I'm not now telling you and talking with you about uh, regulation for a specific field of, of uh, 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 and, and, and legal uh, question. It's, uh, it's the regulation in general and what the organization, organizational uh, question about it. And which, which are the competent authorities who do all this job? Nationally, and on the European side, who uh, can manage this? And it's 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 uh, the first thing I can tell you. It's it's not clear till now. So that's what I want to say. So uh, what we had yesterday this discussion about regulation in general, where you where you said okay, it's over over regulation. So how can we develop a real good legal 
regulatory framework for the future, which helps also industry and uh, consumers to come forward. So that's what regulators are thinking about, and that's what I now want to tell you, just coming, coming to these uh, 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 points. I already mentioned it. The future of regulation, what's, what's needed? We know, uh, and I mentioned it, data law, new data law explained, uh, the data act uh, coming up. We have uh, 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 draft a greater reached political uh, agreement. We had uh, 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 regarding AI law, uh, we had the discussion regarding AI regulation. And what's very interesting, EU, the European Union, always mentions uh, we want to be the leading in regulation. Yeah? So that's, uh, uh, you also mentioned it yesterday. The EU, EU always says we want to be leading in regulation. And I have to been to the US uh, this, this April uh, in, on, on the, on the uh, West Coast, and we had many discussions. And many companies there told us, yes, it's very, very, very uh, fine that the European Union is, is, is working on an AI act. We are expecting, we are waiting for it. Yes, it's great what you have done with the GDPR. But that's also then the US guys mentioned. It's nice. We will take a look at it and we will take that what we think it's fitting for us, for our businesses, but we don't want to take all of this for us. And so Europe is making a work at the US companies and I think also in other parts of, the, uh, of, 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 of this world, they will look at it. It's a good work. But uh, at the end, I would always say this. We are, we are leading in, in, in the regulation and the US are thinking to be leading in the business. So that's a bit the, the difference we are talking about. What we see now is, and what you also have to recognize, uh, when we are talking about regulation in, in, this, in this field, it's now all about data. It's about data competition, not like it was in, 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 in former times and like I also uh, worked very long in, it was in former times, it was more, more the infrastructure competition, to build up the infrastructures, to break up markets. The old regulation was, was more focused on breaking up existing monopolistic markets uh, and, and make uh, by this uh, regulation, and, and I would also say deregulation a bit, uh, make it possible uh, that, that uh, new businesses uh, are developed, that customer welfare increases, that innovation comes to the customers and to the businesses. That was more the focus of regulation, I would say, in the 90s and, and, and the first part of the, the 2000s, of the, the zero years. So that was a bit the, 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 what we now have. Uh, it's not only the breakup of the existing markets. Now we have to develop and maintain uh, new markets. There are new markets coming up. This data is all part of uh, uh, market development, so therefore regulators have now to think how can we maintain the existing uh, framework, the existing uh, uh, legal securities we have, how can we avoid risk, how can we build up a regulatory framework for something we don't really know what is coming. So that's before we, we know what was open, we had a clear target, now we don't know what will come, and so therefore that's the question we have to uh, look at as regulators, and that's one of the big discussions we have on the, on the European 
level with all these regulatory groups. I don't know uh, uh, if you all know this. There are also there are special regulatory bodies on European side. There's the BEREC, that's the board of uh, regulators for your uh, um, electronic communication service. That's where I'm part of. There's also this, this ERGA, that's for the media regulators. There's e, uh, uh, and all the other regulators also have some uh, bodies, while the, the BEREC is, is one of those bodies which is most developed because has an, it has an own office in Riga and it's very broadly, it's just, just very close to an agency. Uh, and we will see that there will be also some developments uh, bringing these bodies to European agencies because one thing I can uh, even, even say at the beginning now is that the national regulation uh, will uh, decrease, I would say, uh, will become less important compared to the, what have to be done on the European level. But we are uh, uh, asked and we are really, really, really challenged to, to bring in our experience on the European level much more than we had done it uh, till now. And coming back to the DSA you, you uh, mentioned, there's this question, the European Union said, okay, there should be a competent authority at the end in, on national level, which is very close to the European Commission in this uh, group. And this competent authority, they call it the so-called, uh, how, how did they say it? If there are several com authorities perhaps competent, there should be one uh, uh, coordinator. And that's, I think, also the new system of, of how the European Union uh, designs the, designs the the regulation uh, uh, organization, uh, where they say, okay, if, if there are several competent authorities in one, one country, there should be a coordinator, so-called so digital service coordinator. Regarding the DSA, uh, the national law isn't, is underway, I would say, it, it's, it will come. I think uh, in, in autumn we will, we will have, a, a, um, I think even, even mid of August, they told us that there will be uh, a consultation on, 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 on the law uh, regarding the DSA, and there will be the, the um, Com Austria, uh, the Communications Authority uh, uh, in, in Vienna, which is part of RTR, will become the Digital Service Coordinator for Austria, uh, but mainly focused, and it, you see it when, when you hear what uh, Dr. Schima said, it's DSA is regarding content, it's regarding uh, liability of, 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 of the content hosts and, uh, and so on. So therefore this is the question, so therefore it's the right thing that is mainly uh, on the media side to, to have this coordinator. But nevertheless, there will be also, also part, uh, partly uh, competences of the Data Protection Authority and also partly competences of us as, as, as the telecoms regulator. Uh, to be brought in, and that has to be coordinated. So that's the, the approach. I will come back to that uh, uh, a bit uh, later, because that's one of the main things when we think about regulation in the future. So, just just make a, a short uh, overview on uh, what I say. I already mentioned it, that the European data strategy aims to make Europe a, a leader in the data driven society, we have many rules, uh, and the rules uh, are in particular regarding privacy, data protection, and competition law. Uh, it's necessary to have fair 
practical and clear rules for access and use of data. Access of use of data is one of the most important uh, questions we also have to think about when we are talking about regulation. Because uh, data is, an, uh, is, is one of the things we need for everything to develop new, new products. Uh, as, when we are talking about AI, we are talking about the tool which needs data for really building up uh, good new products or uh, not, not so good ones. So we, that's, that's the question then of, of regulation. Uh, what we also have to, to think about is uh, uh, how, how infrastructures have to look like, how uh, the cloud capacity uh, should look like. So I think when you take a look at this picture, you see uh, data, it's not only one kind of regulation, it's a very broad uh, uh, picture you have to take into uh, account. And as, as I already uh, said, when you're looking at that and what the European Commission is already producing in this, this part, uh, I always say, okay, saying to be a leader is easy, being a leader is not so easy. So therefore, that's, that's what we are working on because that's now also the question on us as regulators. Uh, can we do business as usual but, or have you think about? So coming, coming to that, uh, these this, uh, data-driven driven, uh, businesses are forcing us as, as regulators. Regulation has a crucial role, role on this and there is now the discussion we are in because coming back to what, uh, what you yesterday also mentioned, how much regulation do we need? Do, we, do the markets make the regulation themselves? That's the similar, we, yesterday we talked about capitalism and, 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 and ideological uh, parts. Looking at the bet, what we know what's, what's, and what we see uh, as regulators is that there is a missing framework we, we need uh, where we can, can, can work in and where we can develop all these things because one thing is the DSA, the other thing is also the other acts we, we, we talked about. We have to develop this and as we all know too much of Deutsch sagt man Zwänge und Zü is no one Zü. I think, I think uh, uh, in, in, in English it says too much or too less, it's the fool's guess. So I would say that's, that's the explanation of that, what I said in, 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 in German. Uh, and I think we have to think about uh, this. So coming, coming to the net, excess high quality data is essential for high performance robust AI systems. Um, coming back to what, what we all talked about uh, AI in the past days, what uh, uh, um, Mr. Forger also in his first, first uh, uh, presentation discussed about AI, is there too much, is there the, the right, is there the wrong uh, regulation, do we need another regulation? So that's what we are thinking about. At the end, all these, these questions, we, we see data is the raw material, AI is the production process or the tool, and the services we get out of it are the, 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 the products. And now is the question at which stage of these three parts uh, you have to start the regulation. Uh, and at the end, who is then uh, the, the uh, competent authority on this? This picture only should give a, a short overview when, when we saw it. it. It's really short. I have this picture at home. It's, it's uh, uh, much broader. It's, it's along, I, I would say it is one meter and one meter long because in much more details, that's only the short version which uh, I, I tried to bring on, on, on this. 
what you all have to think about when you're talking about, about uh, data regulation. You have on the one side the European data strategy and you have this uh, uh, European AI strategy. They are uh, uh, interacted and then you have all these this different acts around. And now there's the question, who, who should do this, this uh, regulation? Because when you look at that, you see there would be nobody who has the experience, the know-how and the resources to do everything at all. We have sometimes also the discussions and the European Commission also, also thinks about to, to have something like a super regulator. That would be a, a fine thing to have. Uh, this super regulator who then uh, can, can deal with everything, with DSA, with, with data protection and, 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 uh, and, and all these AI questions. But at the end, looking at a country like Austria, we have several competent authorities in sector-specific or in specific uh, uh, topics, uh, and they all have their experience, and they all have all the experts you, you need. And it's a real practical, practical uh, question now, how, how you should handle this. They are the experts in this sector-specific uh, uh, regulators, regulation, regulatory authorities, and uh, when you build up uh, it new for all of this, you have to double it either, that's the question, either to double it, the next question is uh, either to build it up in one, put them together in one big regulator, and the third part is that these regulate, regulatory authorities work together and have a process, and that, that's still missing on the, on the European uh, level and the European legislation that there's a clear, a clear uh, a statement how to, to manage this, how to do this. So that's what, what we are missing, what we are talking about and what we have to develop, this cooperation and coordination between uh, the, different, the different bodies. Because everybody of you, if you're working for a company, it, it's not very satisfying if you get a, a, a regulatory decision of uh, perhaps of my authority, uh, which says, okay, it's, it's from telecommunications law side, it's, it's okay. And on the other side, there comes the competition authority and says, okay, no, 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 that's, that's not okay. You, can't, uh, you are not allowed to do that. So therefore, it's, it's very close and very important to uh, uh, work together up front and then uh, making uh, uh, decisions for the businesses, for the uh, consumers and so on. We already uh, had an example, another example, which is now very actual where uh, we, uh, it was in the telecommunications law where it was, it was in regarding uh, sharing and working together between operators. We, we introduced the so-called uh, Article 85 in the telecommunications law. It was, uh, we, we developed this as a regulatory authority where it was decided that before the telecoms commission decides they have to uh, work together in specific cases together with the competition authority and the Kartellanwalt. Uh, uh, um, it's what's the English word for Kartellanwalt? Uh, uh, fe fe federal attorney of competition, or something like that. Uh, with the federal attorney of competition to work together with us, coming to and then the the telecoms commission makes a decision with the input of those two authorities and now the, the operators get, get one decision which is agreed by all, all the other authorities so they don't, they have the security need. And especially in these cases here 
we need really uh, much more uh, cooperation and coordination on, on this. And just to show it a bit view, when you're talking about regulation now in the data field, you have to look at these three, three main points. That's very, very uh, a very rough uh, description of that. But protection is one of the things. The other thing is the competition and the governance, how to handle it, how to, to do it. And it's mainly on the public. Here's more the public side, that's the private business, and here's the, the consumer uh, and, and personal data uh, issue. So it gets only a rough insight uh, how to look at the regulatory world uh, in the future. Uh, when you come to the next picture, you see in regards of the regulations we have uh, now, which type of data is affected when you're talking about with all this GDPR is mainly uh, personal data, here is mainly non-personal data, data act is regarding privacy. You see here, you have a, a very, very broad uh, picture in, in, in this, this case. And now I think I should speed up a bit. Just, just to, to, to say, it, beginning with the GDPR, I don't want to explain it. You have this, this uh, 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 authorities uh, uh, to handle with this. This is the National Data Protection Authority, the European Data Protection Board, and the European Data Protection Supervisor. Uh, and uh, as you see, all these groups from the European side are also part of the European high-level groups. So this, 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 uh, um, the European Data Protection uh, Board and the Data Protection Supervisor is also. For, for, for me, uh, part of this uh, DMA high-level group. So on the European side, you have uh, always groups where these different sectors come together and, and work together with the Commission, which is a step in the right direction, but not the final one. Looking at the Data Governance Act, which will be very, very uh, uh, important within the next uh, weeks or times, because because uh, there should be a legislation already done till the end of the year, although there's not even a data strategy of, 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 the, of, of, of Austria, uh, which would be needed to, to do something like this. Uh, what we can say here, um, uh, the, the uh, directive, uh, the, the act is talking about this, this competent bodies to assist. Um, the question is, who are the competent bodies? Uh, regarding the data governance, I, I can tell you there will be a, a leading role of, 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 of the Institute of, Stati uh, of the Statistic Austria uh, as a regulator in this case. They will be here on, on a leading part to become something like a, um, a data, how, how did they call it? Is, is it uh, 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 I don't know, know the name. Uh, again, so, but, but they will be the su data supervisor in this case, uh, and they will, and they are now coming also to us, building up cooperation, uh, 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 corporations uh, to, to bring forward this, this uh, 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 regulation, because uh, here we are very, very, uh, um, at a very late, late stage in, in, in Austria, so we are very late. Uh, in, in bringing it into, into force. The other thing is regarding Data Act. Uh, here, uh, many, many, one or more competent authorities uh, are 
uh, involves it is mainly the data protection authorities and competent sectoral authorities. It's uh, like also us. We are because because the data explicitly says there should be authority. Uh, the the uh, uh, in, in regarding switching or interoperability, and in this case, there should be a, a authority experienced in the field of data and electronic communication services. So for Austria, this is RTR Telecoms. Uh, we are talking about now to bring that uh, forward. One thing which was not so good that in Austria, for for more than 18 months, nobody uh, on the political side. Uh, was clear who is responsible for the data act. So that was the reason that nobody in Brussels from Austrian side talked at the working groups with the commission by developing the data act. So Austria was not existing in the data act we have to now to handle. Now we know it, now it's the Ministry of Finance, but it's too late because we only have to uh, uh, bring, it, bring it forward and we can be uh, but that's one of those things. So there are so many, many acts, so many uh, decisions, and at the end you don't know who is really the, uh, at, at the end the responsible one for it. So that's, that's regarding the uh, Data Act. And now uh, uh, coming to uh, the end from, 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 from my side, what, what are the new tasks for for uh, NIS like us in this case, reduce, reduce regarding the, uh, the data is reducing barriers to switching. Uh, uh, interoperability of cloud services is one of the, the, the big aims because also uh, at the end, and you have always be, be aware of this, it's always, we are talking most times about protection and uh, uh, to, to avoid risks and so on. So that's when we are talking about regulation, many people think about how to avoid risk, how to uh, maintain existing uh, systems, how uh, uh, to, to uh, uh, have remedies against uh, uh, some actions to be set. But nevertheless, the main task and the main uh, uh, obligation of regulation should be to look for a fair and, and competent competition between uh, the players in the market. It's always also a question of competition. And open competition is at the end, uh, uh, from my point of view, the, 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 the answer on... on uh, the right regulation at the end. So therefore, when we are talking about interoperability, it's the competition uh, uh, which, which helps that cloud service providers are open, having fair practices, drive, drive uh, uh, don't, don't make login effects for their customers and then, uh, because everybody of you, you know, when you're using uh, cloud services now, when you're using apps now, you are logged in. There's, but that should be changed in future, and at the end, this will help because it, the competition will force the companies to have really good offers for the customers, for the businesses, uh, because they want to uh, keep them stay in their services. If uh, interoperability and uh, is, is, is open, they are always threatened that they can lose the customers. Now, nobody, 
a WhatsApp has no, no problem. They will not lose their customers. As long as everybody uses WhatsApp, everybody will use WhatsApp and you can't put your data on, on uh, different uh, services, European services and so on. And that's, that's a bit the aim uh, behind of this. So I'm personally convinced that at the end, competition and maintaining and developing competition as a regulatory job is the best way to reach all these uh, uh, solutions for, for the problems we are talking about when we are talking about regulation. So uh, also uh, cost accounting is being disputed solutions so or should be, should be uh, uh, part and should be part of the knowledge of the know-how uh, regulators should bring with. And as you can read uh, between the lines, and as I said, like RTR telecoms, uh, we think that, that, that uh, we have uh, all the uh, um, basic, basic know-how and knowledge to, to do this in, in the future, to doing this coordination job. So personally, I don't want to, to be an AI authority. I don't want to be a DSA authority or a DMA authority. But what we think, there should be some independent uh, coordinator which coordinates the, the uh, upcoming uh, discussions and, and upcoming uh, questions uh, within Austria. So that's a bit uh, the, the, the story you have to think about when you're talking about and thinking about uh, the data regulation, when you're thinking about what's, what's coming up and how can we solve solutions. It's not avoid only looking at one uh, part of this story. The story is a broader one. Perhaps keep in mind this 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 mind it's, it's 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 a broad picture when we are talking about uh, regulation. It's neat and it's necessary to really uh, discuss and work together on the regulatory side on national level, but also on the European level. And I think uh, that's that's will that will develop within the next. I would say two to five years, so we will see there will be a new kind of regulation uh, we don't uh, see already now. So thank you, and I hope I did it within the So thank you very much for these uh, insights in the practical implications of the emerging um, regulatory environment. I would like um, to turn to Nicolas Forgo now. Um, it was already mentioned on Wednesday that he doesn't need any introduction here. I nevertheless want to say some words um, to, to Nicolas Forgo. So he's professor of IT and IP law at Vienna University. He's head of the Department of Innovation and Digitalization in Law. Um, at the Vienna Law Faculty, and he's also head of the postgraduate program on media and information law. Franz Stefan Meisler already mentioned uh, on Wednesday that he's the go-to person um, if you have any question in IT law uh, in Austria, but that's not only true for Austria. If you take a look at his homepage, you will find that he's a um, partner um, in, I think it's more than 15 international and interdisciplinary uh, research projects. And if you have been member in only one of these research projects, you know how much work that is. And I'm always wondering whether Nikolaus Day has more hours. Um, at least it has more hours than my day. So please join me in welcoming Nikolaus Forgel. At the
think I think I will stand up as well, if that's okay, because you can then see me better. But the, the, the downside of this is that I don't see uh, my notes. Uh, so if, uh, if, I, if, if I make a break or so, this is because I don't remember anymore what I wanted to say. My apologies for this. So uh, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. And I need to start uh, with a German term here, which is Vorrede, which is uh, in English something like preliminary or introduction remarks, um, meaning that I will refer in some parts to some German or Austin uh, uh, issues, and I, I apologize that some, I think one or two of the slides are in German, therefore, but I will um, give you a translation of what I'm talking about. Uh, thank you for this very kind introduction, and I will focus on something which was interestingly, in my view, not yet uh, mentioned uh, during those th three days, uh, although I think it will further darken the picture we are in. Um, uh, and that's about uh, security, in particular um, information security. Um, I'm not an expert in security at all, but I, I do know a little bit about information security. And I think that we will need this uh, also from a political picture, or from a political per perspective here now, to make the picture a little bit more complete. And let me just um, repeat again with this slide that I showed you already two days ago. Um, and you might remember that I insisted on the fact that uh, TikTok is the new kid around the block. And I then said two days ago um, that uh, TikTok is a competitor when it comes to AI and so on. What I did not really uh, refer to then in full detail are the privacy policy uh, details of TikTok. And I, I would invite you just for a moment to read them together with me here very briefly because what you read when you read this and nobody reads it, uh, and even if you read it, it doesn't change anything, right? You still install the app. Um, so if you read that and if it changed anything um, in your behavior, you would have read that uh, in the terms and conditions of TikTok, it's openly said, openly said that of course, taking into consideration GDPR and all the other stupid rules, nobody wants to read either. Of course, taking them into consideration, they, they explicitly write that there is remote access to all kinds of user data uh, of all users, including people in mainland China having access to your data. So this means every single of those kids running around here is in a situation where they agree to transfer of their personal data, of course GDPR compliant, inter alia to mainland China. And I would consider this a risk, also an information security risk and a geostrategic risk and so on. And I would appreciate if that were on the agenda um, of European legislators um, and of European policymakers, and importantly and interestingly, TikTok has come on, on the radar of European uh, policymakers, including the European Commission, uh, because the European Commission is launching um, press releases like this one here in, 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 in this matter. And I don't want to criticize that they are doing it this um, in particular, what I want to criticize is the, 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 the wording, right? So commission strengthens cybersecurity and suspends the use of TikTok on its corporate devices, as if that were a significant contribution to the fundamental issue, which is there are millions of people 
using, um, using this on their phones every day. Um, by the way, ironically, you will find all kinds of European policymakers still on TikTok, despite of the fact that uh, they don't allow their staff uh, to use that um, any longer. And I start with this because I think this conflict of goals or this fundamental problem that uh, things are more complicated and that you should need to do things differently and simultaneously is in a way the starting for me for this presentation in order to give you a very brief overview about where we stand when it comes to regulation of information security um, in Europe. And just like in any other of the fields that we were debating in the last two days, the legislator has been outstandingly active also in this domain. In particular, we have the so-called Network Information Security 2 Directive, which is the one I will mainly talk about. And then we have a proposal for a regulation laying down rules to prevent and combat child sexual abuse. That will be the second piece I will mainly talk about. And let me just start with a personal remark. I'm I've been working on and with the internet now on more, for more than 30 years, and whenever something which is critical or politically discussed enters the scene, child pornography is with it, right? So because this is so obviously evil that it can be used for every argument that you want to. And that's true now for the last 30 years, and we are still in this situation. Uh, I will come back to that in a, in, in a few minutes. So let's start with the NIS 2 directive, which is already in force and which is to be transposed until the 17th of October 2024. Quite soon, by the way. Um, I, I'm not aware of any, uh, any major or significant movements of the Austrian legislator in, in this domain, apart from the fact that the ministries start to compete who is going to be the one in the leading role. So just with the, just like with the DA and DGA, where, we, where it took us months or even years to identify the leading ministry, I see us running into a rather similar situation here. In this case, it's the federal chancellery on the one hand and the ministry of the interior on the other hand who might have stakes in the game. And if you think politically about that we are going to have elections next year um, and there might be changes in the, uh, in the government that might be also foreseen already now by people in the game, um, it might be interesting to hear uh, who, is be whether it, who is going to be the one taking care of uh, information security and whether it's going to be the Minister of Interior so please fill in a name of a person you might think about. Or the chancellor, please fill in a name of a person you might think about. And we are talking about 2024, so that's quite soon. So we are late with this. Uh, we are late, uh, different from the Germans, by the way. And I have, um, I have a, uh, so this is one of the German terms that I'm using. Um, I have one rule of thumb, which is you identify a bad law in many cases already by the title. And this is a very nice one because the German transposition of this is, is called, or the proposal for a German transposition of this is called NIS 2 Umsetzungs- und Cybersicherheitsstärkungsgesetz, uh, which has a beautiful abbreviation, NIS 2 Umsuchtrügel. Yeah? Right. So 
In, in English, this is transposition and enforcement of cybersecurity um, in a law. So this is the German proposal. That is already on the table and that you can have a look into. And this is what you need to know uh, about the directive and also about the law. There is a law in Germany on uh, security and information security. It, ha it has 15 articles so far. So far. Uh, the new proposal now has 65. So four times more, just, just if you just take the text, which is stupid, of course, but it gives you some kind of indication four times more of articles that companies that are, or administrations that are concerned about or that are affected by this law will need to take into consideration if this should make it through the German uh, Bundestag and Bundesrat. Um, and the reasoning for this other explosion of law uh, is possibly already given by the first um, uh, actually by the second recital of the NIST 2 directive. So just like in the DSA, where Bernard rightly mentioned that there's quite some explanation about the reasoning behind, this is also the case here in this case. And the reasoning in, in, art in, in the second recital um, of this directive starts with the following statement. Since the entry into force of the first Network Information Security Directive, which is the NIS-1 directive, it's this one here, 1148 of 2016. Significant progress has been made in increasing the union's level of cyber resilience. So the statement is due to the law and since then, Europe has made significant progress when it comes to cyber resilience. Let me just make this here a little bit more interactive who of you agrees with this statement? Okay, case, clo case closed, right? Case closed. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, I could show now again Thierry Breton, just somewhere standing around, but I will not do that. Instead of this, I will just refer to this. It's an explosion of laws because it's going to proceed or continue with this success story that we saw already in this one. And potentially affected by this is more or less everyone who has, um, is in a critical area. What that is, is another issue I will talk about in a second with more than 50 employees and more than 10 million of euro annual turnover. So it will be a lot more of companies and a lot more of industry being affected by this. In particular, research institutions will be affected by this. Um, public administration and digital infrastructure providers will be affected by this law, a lot more. So if you are in public administration, um, it's quite likely that your, uh, that your organization is a target of this. If you are, um, uh, in any kind of digital industry, uh, it's also very likely that you are affected by this. But also if you are just running a postal service or something, it might be that you are within the scope of this. And what then needs to be done if you are affected is beautifully described in, for example, Article 21 of this. And I will not read this uh, together with you. There are some words which are highlighted in red. Uh, and the reason why they are highlighted in red is that this is the lengthy version of something which 
lawyers normally tend to drill down to be careful and it depends what this really means, right? So whether this is state of the art or whether something is appropriate to the risk posed or whether something is proportionate as a measure is something which obviously needs to be decided on a case-by-case -case basis. So the key message of this is it's, it's dangerous and be careful and, and be aware of the risks, but we can't tell you any details. Um, more on this if you want to read a little bit more about this, um, all kinds of, so for example, I would really invite you because I fundamentally don't understand this, I would really invite you to consider together with me what this really means that if you are affected and you need to undertake all those measures, what you should then do if you want to implement basic cyber hygiene practices. So what is a basic cyber hygiene practice? I don't think that is washing your hands before sitting in front of the computer. So interesting to interpret this um, in, in the domain. And there's plenty of other things which are as interesting, just like the basic cyber hygiene practices. And of course, just like in any other of those acts, it's again the commission self-authorizing the commission to come up with further details. So again, on top of all this, uh, the commission will have to implement, um, to adopt implementing acts, bringing probably even more of those um, details um, on the table. So let's assume then that you are affected, let's assume that you took all those measures, and let's assume then that you, s that you have an incident, right? Something is happening, something is happening which is strange on your, on your network and you need to report that. According to this directive, it's not enough to provide just one report, you need to provide up to four reports on one incident, right? You have a preliminary report when you identify it. You have a report to deliver within 72 hours after having identified the incident. You have then to give an intermediate report about the progress made upon request of the authority. And you have to make a final report within one month um, on one single incident. So this means, I, I, I had a very interesting conversation yesterday uh, during lunch, I think, uh, about what such a report means. A report means that your company is at hold, right? at least major parts of your company, your IT department, your legal department, your compliance department are on hold because they don't do anything but providing material for such a report. You need to do this now four times for one incident. And if you then report, interestingly, one of the things that you need to take into consideration is that you need to provide uh, the authority with, um, uh, with proof that you have implemented uh, the, the relevant cybersecurity policies that I, meant before, that I mentioned before, right? So you will need to report not only that you were in line with the law, but you will need to prove this. You will, have, you will need to have all this in writing. So just like in GDPR, the main outcome of GDPR was not that data protection is more fundamentally protected or more important in Europe at all, it's that plenty of paper was written on pretending that data protection is taken more seriously than before. And this is going to happen exactly, uh, th this is my prognosis, this is going to happen exactly in the same way here because of the implementation of this accountability principle 2.0 as I call it. 
And the risks, just like in the success story of GDPR, are significant, so there is uh, quite an important incentive to follow this. Um, and this is, by the way, also from, from uh, those of you who are into legal language, this is a very funny example, because the risks are, are high, and interestingly, member states have to guarantee that the administrative fines have a maximum of at least a given sum, right? So you, you need to implement a maximum of at least, which means that you can feel free to take 10 times more uh, as a maximum fine here, which is, I, I like that, uh, that, that wording. <laughs> okay, and now to the German text. So I, this is the German original of the German draft, so this is not the law yet. And this is my translation of this unofficial German official text. I used Depot for this, by the way, but I did some corrections to the Depot uh, suggestion. This is interesting, in my view, because what we have seen and what this law knows without telling us, and this is the second provocation of this presentation, what we have seen and what this law telling us is telling us is opposite from recital two, we have a very significant cybersecurity problem in very many companies in Europe and in very many public administrations. And as this is the case, and as you are the legislator, one of the instruments that you could use to try to make this better is to make the people running the administration or running the company even more strictly reliable and liable for what is going to happen here. And this is, in my view, the most extreme version of this that I have ever seen. Because what you see here now is, it's also interesting perhaps for the corporate lawyers in the room, if there are any, um, um, uh, what you see here is that they are really drilling this down to make the head of the company liable and therefore reliable by them personally asking to take measures. So the business managers, blah, 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 have to, um, have to, take, into, um, have to take care of, are obliged to approve the cybersecurity risk management. So if I, was, if I was not mistaken, I saw the president of the Austrian uh, Federal Supreme Court yesterday in the church, she was there. So imagine her signing off uh, the security policy of the federal court, because this is probably her um, who will need to do that. And it's not allowed any longer to commission this to a third party. So somebody like her, uh, Professor Lobrecht, will be the one who will then need to take the responsibility that all these unclear terms, right, appropriate, proportionate, uh, state of the art, etc., are to be in place in this. Um, and on top of this, if you violate the obligations as a CEO of the company, in this case, you will be held liable for the institution and the institution may not waive this liability, right? So even if you have in your personal labor contract that you are not a cybersecurity expert and that you unfortunately therefore can't tell people what exactly this means, uh, and what they should do, it still means that you are the one uh, who will need to pay, pay for this. Um, and just to make this even clearer then, imagine Professor Lovrek needing, because she must, 
she must go there, needing to go and to participate in cybersecurity training to acquire sufficient expertise in the domain, right? So people like Professor Lovrek or I don't know, all the CEOs that we saw yesterday, they are going to seminars, which is really good news for seminar providers, obviously, because you will start with, this is a mouse, this is a computer, and you can lead them then up to be uh, cybersecurity specialists um, at the end, and that will be a rather, uh, rather um, impressive and 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 uh, nice uh, business area, I think. So if if I if I had money to invest into, I would invest into cybersecurity educational institutions at the moment. This will be a big thing. So that was part one. Uh, part two, don't worry, will be much shorter. Part two now is on this child abuse thing. Um, as I said, since I've been on in this field, um, this is this is the, uh, the 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 argument that is constantly coming uh, when uh, surveillance is supposed to be increased. Right? Whenever any police authority asks for more competencies, one of the key arguments coming within five minutes is child pornography and child abuse. And this is happening in a completely different field now, again, because there is this proposal uh, on the table for a regulation on, child, on, on better protect children from child sexual abuse material. And there is plenty of uh, debate on this uh, ongoing at the moment. And the debate is on the one hand legally driven. So people argue that there are all kinds of legal issues that are not properly covered here. And on the other hand, it's technically driven the debate because the technical part of the debate is that if this is going to be law, one of the very few basic security infrastructures that we have agreed on after 30 years of debate, technically and legally, which is end-to-end -end encryption. End-to-end -end encryption meaning that a man in the middle, in an attacker in the middle, can't decipher what you communicate about because it's encrypted and nobody can decipher this. So if this comes into law, then one of these very few fundamental solutions we have so far, which is end-to-end -end encryption, will be weakened or will be made impossible. This is the main claim here. And this is a claim which is not made by me here. And that's my third remark on why I think that European policymakers miss the point. What I'm, what I'm referring to now in the next three or four slides is an opinion of the legal service of the council. So one of the legislative uh, bodies on, on a European level, and it's their legal service. So I would assume that this is, I mean, this is something which is hopefully objective, right, in the sense of that they want to help the legislator and at the same time they want to tell about the risks. This is a leaked version. By the way, this is one of the funny things also in European politics that whenever things become different, miraculous, uh, difficult, miraculously leaked versions appear and nobody really knows where they are from. I don't know where it is from and I don't know whether this is true, but I think there are quite, quite significant indicators that this is um, a proper document. Um, so the, the legal service of the council discussing this issue of end-to-end -end encryption to be weakened when it comes to child sexual, uh, sexual abuse 
You can read the document, I have put the reference below. And again, without bothering with too much of text here, the main statement here is, the screening of content communications would need, if this would need to be effective, there are three options here. Option one, uh, abandoning effective end-to-end -end encryption. Second, introducing some form of backdoor into encryption, right? So that you have a key allowing you to decipher this. Or third, accessing the content on the device so that you have um, a Trojan horse on your device taking the message before it's ciphered. That would be option three. These are the three options according to the, and I, I think it's a quite proper description of the situation. These are the three options that you have according to the council's legal service. And therefore they say it appears that the generalized screening of content of communications to detect any kind of child sexual abuse material would require de facto prohibiting, weakening, or otherwise cyber circumventing cybersecurity measures. So again, the legal service of the council makes the statement that if the European legislator puts this into law, this is weakening fundamental cybersecurity measures in Europe. And at the same time, we introduce the NICE 2 directive, right? And again, then at the end, the council says there is a serious risk of non-compliance of these measures with the nice principle of proportionality, which is the, the, the nicer word for it depends and be careful uh, that we talked about before. Right? Of course, the commission now starts writing papers that all this is inappropriate and that uh, the risks are not that serious and 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 and. and which I could not go deeper into this presentation because it's not my main point. My main point is that we have this fundamental issue here, which is that we don't know where we want to run to and what is the direction that we want to run to, also when it comes to cybersecurity. Thank you very much. <laughs>